Hello, hello, beautiful people. Welcome to Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. Today, I present a very special guest today on this Wednesday afternoon. I hope you all appreciate the questions and the answers that we give later. Um, we have some audience engagement as well, which is good to see. Constance Every is running as an independent for the governor of Tennessee against the incumbent Republican Bill Lee. Uh, she's an activist. She runs two nonprofit organizations, Sleeves for Needs and Black Coffee Justice. She also served in the U.S. Army in Afghanistan as well for 15 years, I think. So we're going to talk yeah. a little bit more about your background. And just um, we have a lot to cover today. Education. We're going to talk about cannabis legalization. We're going to talk about economy, schools, a lot of different topics. So uh, can you kind of give your audience uh, a brief bio into um, who is Constance Everett? <laughs> yeah. Constance Every, I tell you all time, believe whatever you heard, good and the bad, because I match energy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bother. I match the vibe. Uh, but no, real quick. Yeah, thank you so much, Kiko, for having me here today. I don't care if I call you, you want me to call you Kiko? Or do you want me to call you Professor? That's perfect. Like I love Kiko. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So thank you so much, Kiko for, Kiko, for having me on the Free Thinkers Forum today. I really appreciate that. Yes, my name is Constance Every. Uh, I am a Knoxville, Tennessee native. I was born and raised right here in this beautiful state of Tennessee. Uh, I did my pre uh, K through 12 education here. Uh, I did some of my college education uh, in the UTK atmosphere, but I started out at Austin University up there in Clarksville, Tennessee. Uh, that is also where I got introduced to the military. And of course, uh, as many uh, of our, uh, many people that are coming from the lower income demographics and, and poor economical uh, upbringing, uh, we don't have money for education. So that's how I found myself in the military. It was a way to pay and afford education. Uh, yes, I joined under those pretenses, but I also joined in 2006, as some people are aware of what was going on in 2006. That was the jump off of the Iraqi war, and as we know, eventually would go to Afghanistan, which is where I did my deployment in Afghanistan. Um, as far as who I am, uh, as you've already highlighted some things, yes, I am well endowed into the Black activism, Black activist advocate, advocacy work, uh, particularly definitely for definitely Black rights. As we know, that is a longstanding historical struggle for this country known as America, uh, but also for human rights, because uh, one of the things that you find when you start to fight for Black rights, you find that you're crossing over many areas of human rights, such as homelessness, uh, disabled veterans who are also homeless and struggling with mental illness, uh, you know, affordability for basic things like housing, uh, food, utilities. Uh, so, you know, you just find yourself in a lot of areas of just not just all black rights, but like I said before, a collective in an overall, overall, all of an umbrella of human rights. Uh, so that's what I've been doing for the last roughly seven to 10 years uh, since I got out of the military in 2015. Uh, and so that's kind of me in a nutshell, and I'm sure we're going to unpackage me a little bit more. I come from a family home of two parents. I am a two-parent home uh, a child, which is rare in our statistics of Black people. Uh, my father has worked for uh, the federal government in Oak Ridge, Y-12 area. Of course, I can't speak on what he does because he doesn't speak on what he does. Uh, <laughs> but my father raised me on pro-union uh, workforce ethics because, you know, that's how you protect your rights. So I'm definitely pro-advocate for uh, unionships because I was born that way. I did a hot sting at the United States Postal Service. I was part of the Mail Handlers Union. Uh, and actually, any job I can ever think of that I've ever had that had a union, I've always been a member of the union. Uh, because, again, it was about protecting my voice, my circumstances, and my rights as an employee for major corporations and industries. Um, as far as my mother... Uh, my mother is what a mother is. She's a nurturer. She's a carer. Uh, she was big into Christianity, Christian faith in the church. So I grew up Southern Baptist like many of us do in the South. Uh, of course, later on in life, as I've grown and been able to learn, research, and study for myself in theology and other aspects, I today more lean towards the spiritual faith-based belief, uh, given the fact that uh, you know, just some of the things around religion and its control concepts, I find that as a free thinker, as I'm a great thing about the show, free thinker. I like that. Uh, <laughs> is that, yeah, that uh, you know, I don't have to conform myself to something because society said so. It's okay for me to be outside of society or even different or even disagree with society if it does not benefit or fulfill my needs. Uh, and so that's some of the background on my, my, my mother and father. Of course, I have brothers and sisters. I have beautiful nieces and nephews, many, many cousins with many of their offspring. That's also now my cousins and a beautiful relationship of 
community and friends uh, all across the city, across the county, across the state, really across the country, because that's what you do the military. It does give you another family outside of your so-called, you know, quote unquote, uh, traditional nuclear nucleoid family. Uh, so yeah, so that's kind of, like I said, again, some of the aspects of constant every, and I hope with the few hours that we're going to visit today and talk, we can farther unpackage exactly who is and what is constant every. Oh, we'll definitely do that. No doubt about it, because I love to talk <laughs> and we got some talkers on this forum right now. And I have just a follow-up question about just your bio. So you're from the military background. Do you have anyone else in your family that has that background? Oh, yes, yes. Actually, all together, if I think between before, if you include me, uh, all together, I think I've had roughly about 20-something members of my family okay. that have been in military service, like aunts, uncles, brothers, cousins. I even got a cousin right now who's in the Navy as we speak right now. Um, so yeah, I have, I come from a military family background as well. Absolutely. What are your views about the military now? You say you served for 15 years. Uh, do you have a conflict of, not a conflict of interest, but do you have conflicting views about the military and what it does as far as this military industrial complex? Do you have sort of a, a, a conflict with that, like on a personal level? Yeah, I mean, when I did my uh, last tour with Afghanistan in 2011, 2011, 2012, when we, when we went out, came back. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that, that tour was a really rough tour. Uh, that was a tour that I had more interaction with the civilians of the Afghanistan country. Uh, and one of the things I'll tell you right now, they were like me and you, Kiko, that's what they look like. They look like us. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it was really hard to realize that. What we've been through in our history as Black people with the American and then colonizing uh, uh, imperialism, uh, neocolonialism imperialism system, we were literally doing the same thing all over again. Now we just call it USA America, United States Army. Uh, and so realizing that I was in a country that was being uh, oppressed and having an outside entity come in and disrupt their way of life, their culture, uh, their, their beliefs and everything, and now having someone tell them, you no longer can live this way, or you have to now follow this new regime and rule, or there will be consequences and repercussions that obviously we're doing as a, a war right now, which is bombing and killing their, their families in their homes. Uh, and so just having that harsh reality check to realize that the very thing I hate in my own country, I'm now in someone else's country doing the exact same thing. Uh, that's why I said that, you know, the, the, the beauty of, I think, going to war is that, yes, it was a very ugly place. And so I learned, one thing I learned is that war is not the solution to any conflict uh, mm -hmm. that you're having, whether it be diplomatic, economical, even if it is a dispute, verbal or physical, the war level is like ultimate, like we are not able to uh, maintain humanity any longer and have functional interactions that we cannot resolve our, our solutions or reach resolution with to our problems. Uh, and so that's one of the harsh realities of war. But the second one was, like I said, seeing exactly how America and fellow colonizing countries are able to do exactly what they do, which is that they have more money, they have more people, they got more resources, they have team, you know, they tag team with other countries that can pour in their resources and help even beef up even more uh, people and accessibility and resource and funding to their, to their campaigns. And so when you have a country that you're not even fighting an army over there. That's what I don't think people understand. We were not fighting an Afghanistan army. We were fighting Afghanistan civilians who were fighting for their rights of, on their land, for their beliefs, their culture, and their way of life that America and fellow NATO, uh, 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 fellow NATO uh, allies were coming to disrupt and basically take over from them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so after I realized that in my last tour, I said, yeah, this is it for me. I'm getting out of this. And if anything, I'm going to come home and start fighting for the people because if America could do that to, to Afghanistan, guess what America do? They'll do it to us as well. They'll do it pretty much to anybody at that point. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well explained. Yeah. I was just curious because I know a lot of people get their messaging about the military from the mainstream media. And this forum is a very mm -hmm. critical, um, has a critical approach towards the mainstream media. Like we don't follow corporate media. We fight against those narratives. And there are lots of veterans, regardless of political persuasion, that are anti-military now as far as what they're doing, as far as the anti-imperialism. Um, they don't mm -hmm. see the point of spending all this money on war, funding other mm -hmm. countries for senseless reasons. And there are a lot more people that, you know, conservative-minded people even not. The more people I meet, the more people are saying, I'm just getting so tired of this, Kiko, just a war machine. 
Like we need to protect our own people and our own interests here. And that's kind of why I hear from you as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, we could better spend that money for our needs in America. Uh, and that's, yeah, I totally agree. I'm sure that fellow veterans have told you the same thing I'm going to say. I'm going to repeat it. This is a veteran line. <laughs> is that America needs to take care of America first. You know, it's ironic that America's military is around the world policing everybody and everything. But then when we're at home, we can't police our own selves. Texas should have never happened if America was serious about security in their own homeland. Uh, we shouldn't have starving children in America if we were serious about feeding and agricultural investment in our own country. Uh, it's just, you pick a topic, pick any topic. You're saying healthcare. We shouldn't have this dysfunctional system called healthcare if we were serious about our needs and making sure our people are healthy and living longevity, productive lives. And so, yes, I totally agree with that statement. War is a waste of taxpayers' money because that's what we paying for. So, yes. Fellow Americans, you are the big spender on wars. When they invest in what, what Trump said last time around, he just invested like seven, over $700 billion of taxpayers' money into war. And here's my thing for the folks who are pro-war or for particularly political leadership, who was the real ones who's kind of driving this narrative around war, is what are you seeking? Like, what is our objective and goal? Because I'll tell you right now, when I was in Afghanistan, I'm going to tell you what the objective and goal was. It was to overtake the Iraqi, Iran, and Afghanistan wars. I'm like, oh, that's what we were there for. We were there actually uh, transporting uh, uh, oil drills for Dick Cheney and George Bush uh, uh, contracting companies and their crony friends is what we were out there doing. We were, like I said before, we were not fighting the Afghanistan army. We were not fighting a uh, corrupted Afghanistan uh, 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 government or regime. We were not fighting uh, uh, people who were actual uh, enemies of Afghanistan or invading Afghanistan. We were their, their NATO or their ally support. We were over there literally hijacking and stealing those people's resources, which was their oil. That's exactly what we did. That was another reality check. I was like, I ain't even out here for a real reason. I'm out here because some right. greedy people have me out here risking my life and my fellow comrades' lives. You understand that we're out there together, and we're really out here for some rich people at home initiative, not for actual war because someone's really violating a human right. And war was the only answer to get this, to get the human right and get, and get the uh, civility and, and uh, humanity back to the people that we quote unquote are fighting against. So yes. War, that, that Afghanistan war was so bogus, it's not even funny. Uh, and like I said, yeah, uh, as you've already expressed, fellow uh, veterans share the same sentiments. It was a waste of my time, a waste of my life. And at the end of the day, the mental illness I deal with today because the things I saw and, and experiences I had was just not worth it. I would have definitely traded my 15 years back in a heartbeat for something mm. totally different between that 15 doing instead of been serving in the military that was basically telling me to go do what they've done to people that look like me as well and do like me. Like I said, they were look, they look just like us over there. Okay. So it's, I love this because we're already kind of getting into <laughs> issues and I'm all about the issues, <laughs> not these platitudes and this, this team game with the blue, red, green, purple, yellow, I'm all right. about the issues. And so I love that we're right. talking about this already. Can you kind of tell the audience a little bit about your two nonprofit organizations before we kind of get into um, your campaign and your strategy? I know you said that you don't want to reveal too much strategy on the Almost in Agreement podcast. You was telling the host that. But we will mm -hmm. talk a little strategy. I mean, I think it is important to kind of get the visibility and stuff. But mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit more about Black Coffee Justice and Sleeves for Needs? Yeah, and I want to correct something. It's not that I'm not willing to share strategy. I know that my fellow <laughs> candidate mates are oh. watching and paying attention. Oh, okay. And like you said, when you speak more to the issues and less of like what you said, more of the party color lines and loyalty, I don't have time for that. I'm going to talk about issues. But I find that when you are running on a party loyalty kind of alliance ticket, you find yourself getting caught up in that, that scenario conversation. You, <laughs> you almost said something. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to question a little bit. That's all good, no. This is a free thing is for him. Free speech. Right? <laughs> but what I find is that when you are party alliance and loyalty, you kind of do get lost or distracted or even uh, uh, less educated and informed about the issues. And so they find themselves piggybacking and kind of parroting some of your comments when they have a larger platform. People may think like, oh, wow, that was a great idea. And really, that was never an idea. They're stealing it, which we know there's a story about that too, right? Stealing ideas don't always work out for people. Mm -hmm. But getting back to the subject, I just want to correct that. I'm not afraid to share strategy, but there are some aspects of my strategy. I may not be 
before coming to because okay. I'd rather wait time to speak to a larger platform, which this might be it. You have a pretty big base platform, so this might be the spot. Depending on how you ask it, what it is, we'll see how that goes, right? We're not going to predetermine anything. But okay, talking about the uh, organization. So yes, uh, my first organization I founded was Please for Needs. It's a 501c3 social service organization. Uh, I found this organization in disparity. Uh, it became my own beacon of light and hope in a very dark time of my life. Let's talk about being a veteran. Let me show you how America shows their appreciation of you. When I returned from overseas and had completed my contract with honorable discharge, that means I didn't do anything to get out of or get anything that would violate the contract that I made with the United States of America quote, uh, uh, with the Department of Defense Army. So uh, I got an honorable discharge. My country dumped me back into the streets and I spent four years in homelessness. Uh, and that was a hard four years. Now, you know, I know some people say, well, you got a family thing. Well, again, you have to understand the black family dynamic and the way we are raised and taught as uh, children to parent, parent to children. Uh, and unfortunately, the black family dynamic, we don't do what some of our fellow ethnic counterparts do when their children uh, are grown and in, in times of hard need. We just don't do it the same. And so I was not given a life raft by my parents. I was pretty much left to figure it out on my own. Uh, and, and not knocking my parents, I love them to death. Now, actually, I do appreciate they, did, they didn't save me because if they didn't, I might not have done some of the things I've done to even get to here to have the conversation we're having right now. Uh, so I don't hold any uh, animosity or grudges to my parents. I was frustrated, but I, now I see the benefit was greater. And some people could argue. I know there's some people that may debate that all day. That's fine. But I found this sleeping in homelessness um, because what happened to me was, you know, I was battling with the VA. The VA had deemed me 70% uh, uh, mentally incompetent or mm. mentally ill. That's maybe a better way to put it. And they deemed me 70% mentally ill from my PTSD and my trauma I experienced overseas. Mm. I did have a couple of injuries, like my knee, my Achilles, my shoulder. These things still bother me to this day. So I had a few injuries, but what the big thing was, was my PTSD uh, because I was actually in a situation where I was in a kill zone. Uh, with fellow uh, comrades uh, and was actually hit by an actual IED. I mm -hmm. actually did experience an IED hit. Uh, thank God, as you see, I'm standing here with 10 fingers, 10 toes, but mm -hmm. the shock and the trauma of it all uh, still exists and still remains to this day. Um, so I found this least need as a, as a beacon of hope because I was looking around. I saw other people like me, not just veterans. It was uh, elderly people. People don't realize how many elderly people are in homelessness because they are on fixed income mm -hmm. and they're getting shoved out their homes. Uh, because property taxes are increases in rent. And as we know, Social Security is actually just now making its first true cost of living raise in how many years since we've mm -hmm. had to help Medicare? So it's like, you know, they're just now acknowledging the fact that costs went up and we have not given people enough income to even live off of. So at, at that at that time when I was in homelessness, it was a lot of elderly people who were literally pushed out of their homes where they could not afford it and they did not have the uh, cost of living increase on their fixed income. Uh, the other factor that I saw homelessness, believe it or not, there are professors and educated people out there, but life is hard. You know, we don't talk to the guy who has the doctorate degree uh, in sociology or anthropology, but we also don't know the story about how his wife died from terminal four illness cancer, how his daughter may have been killed in a tragic car wreck, or how his son drowned on a, a weekend trip vacation in Florida from an incident of proper inflation of his uh, of his lifeguard or his life vest. You know, we don't talk about that. And so these are things that, as a person outside, they look like they got it all together. They can spiral out at any moment because life is unfortunately hard. Uh, and so I guess that's tied to some aspects of mental illness, right? So we don't talk about that. We do, but we don't. We do talk about the mental illness factor of our homeless community, but then we also find a way to uh, criminalize them or even mm -hmm. uh, defame or, or, or humiliate them by trying to throw in the drug conversation. Here's the kicker, though. Let me get some data. In the most recent report that was done particularly for the Knox County area, uh, and I have to look more at the statewide aspect, which I will soon. I'm actually going to do a, high, a, a highlight on housing facts here real soon. Mm -hmm. But in Knox County area, they found out that in the in the roughly about 10,000 plus homeless people here in Knox County, which is over 10K, over that. But what they found out was that 60% of the homeless community was made up of people who could no longer afford their homes. So they were pushed out. Another like... 20% uh, was people with mental illness. I so mean, like mm -hmm. they mentally need to be somewhere else, but the streets is the only option because unfortunately Knoxville closed our Lake Shore, which is one of our longest standing 
uh, 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 mental health hospitals here. We didn't have one. We literally don't have one. They got a new one coming, but it's like years after the fact and years after this population's already grown over. Um, and then what you, so that's 20, so that's 60, that's 20, that's 80%. And then I want to say it was like, maybe it was either 20% or 50% was actual people with drug addiction. But again, drug addiction is the word here. And when we talk about mm -hmm. drug addiction, we're talking about someone who is taking drugs as an escape from what the actual issue is. Because again, like I said, life is hard. People have many reasons why they have breakdowns. But when you don't feel like you have any outlet and you're just looking for some relief from that moment of those thoughts that are in your head, constantly reminding you that you're a failure, that you're a loser, that you you, you disappointed so many people. You didn't come through like you said you were going to come through. People find and look for coping mechanisms. And sometimes those coping mechanisms are drugs. But here's a legal one that we don't talk about. How about alcohol? How many people get drunk sure. as hell to escape what they're dealing with? Because alcohol is a legal drug, but it's still a coping mechanism. Someone abuses it every day, mm -hmm. bottle after bottle, every weekend. Uh, and so seeing that, uh, I realized that we're all in the same boat now. We're literally riding in the same boat. And what we were all dealing with was disparity with no hope. And so I got my first hand of hope from a fellow veteran. Fellow veterans had found me and that were previously homeless themselves. Like, hey, there's a way for you. You don't have to be here. Not, really, nobody should be here. But for you, definitely, there's a whole infrastructure just designed for veterans. Uh, and that is how I got my first real hand up and been introduced to some amazing VA counselors out in the Maryville, Tennessee area who mm -hmm. really fought with me with the VA to get my 100% disability because the crazy part was that the VA had already given me 70%, uh, but it was clear that I needed full percent because I couldn't maintain employment because of my mental illness and more importantly, uh, just civilian interaction. I'm just, yeah, I'm not a people person like I may have been used to. And I think the military did change a lot of that dynamic in myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's not a crime to be different. It's not a crime to be not be bothered with people. Uh, the issue is the mental health aspect and obviously how people, again, like I said, we demonize and criminalize mental illness instead of really realizing some people just can't handle the same situations the way that we do. Uh, and so out of that, getting that VA accessibility, getting connected to VA counselors who are serious about helping veterans and really helping me fight back with the VA and getting my full benefits, uh, I took that along with Steve's and Denise and said, you know what, we can now go even harder now because now I know how to get vet fellow veterans out of homelessness. I know how to do that. Uh, more importantly, I know more of the resources that are readily available for anybody who's homeless, regardless of the fact. That's the other part we don't talk about is how these nonprofits, let's, we're going to talk about United Way. We're going to have to talk about Salvation Army. We're going to have to talk about one that's here locally in our community, CARM. We're going to have to talk about these organizations because they're getting millions of dollars mm -hmm. of the federal and state and local budget, which again is taxpayers' money, but yet you are not making a dent into homelessness. So what are you doing now? You've made, you brought capitalism into areas of existence is non-profitism, and you have found a way to profit from people's pain and poverty. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, having that real significant understanding of how these organizations were finding ways to be more of a no to people than a yes, because you have the money, but you're telling people no. You're telling pregnant women they can't stay in your shelter because they had a previous history of incarceration. Make that please make sense. Matter of fact, they should be here first, right? Because you're trying to help them stay out of incarceration and they're pregnant. You would think you would say, hurry up and get in my shelter. But these are things that are really happening in some of these organizations' spaces. They're finding mm -hmm. more reasons to help them why they can't help them than they are telling them how they can help them. And so Sleeps and these kind of became that catch them in the crack, catch them in the gap organization. We said, you know what? Remove the red barrier. Remove the red tape. Remove the unnecessary, intrusive 50-page questionnaire about how you got into homelessness. And let's just focus on step one, which is where I'm going to meet you where you at. I've met you. Mm -hmm. So let's figure out how we can start from here and get you all the way back to a productive citizen in our society. And so that's what Sleeps and Needs really does. We're a social service organization that meets people where they are. We provide the needs right there on the spot to whatever it is, whether it's food, whether it's clothing. Uh, sometimes we do have shelter. Again, that's based off of our funding resources because we don't have uh, housing or accomplishments for people in, but we do do hotels. We do have no no problem putting a person in a hotel for a few days and up to a week if the organization has the funds to do such things. Uh, and the other things that we do, we also try to catch people before they lose their home. 
So sometimes when we have the funding, we can pay your light bill. Sometimes I can pay your rent or your mortgage for you. Uh, you know, things like that. We really try to find ways to really assist people in their moments to relieve that disparity off of them, to give them some hope to know that someone does care. We see you. That's the key thing. You're mm -hmm. visible here. I see and hear you. Uh, and, and more importantly, fighting and advocating because that's the other part of it right because then after we do the work to help the people we know that that's a temporary solution we got to find a permanent solution and unfortunately who has all the access to resources and the money our political leadership our mm -hmm. municipality bodies they have those positions and so we have to go and now advocate and let our mayor and our city councils our county commissioners our county mayors our state representatives our governor our our federal elected officials and i have to all the way up to the dc of president if, if, if that's that what it takes we have to let them know how you're spending our money. You're missing a lot of people. And when you do that, you're leaving a lot of people hurt and, and hopeless and, more importantly, wide open for harm and violence. And, and let's understand something. Violence is not always physical. There's economical violence. There is verbal violence. There <laughs> is identity violence. And so violence is not always, oh, I'm going to walk around punching your face, Kiko. Sometimes it's, oh, I'm going to purposely harm Kiko by denying him access or denying him resources or denying him funding for something he desperately needs for his own livelihood and well-being. That's mm -hmm. also from the violence. Um, so that is, please, to me, in a nutshell. We honestly birthed out a sister org, Black Coffee Justice. And as we already discussed, Black Coffee Justice kind of picked more of the actual human right fight because at some point when you consistently see people struggling to pay for housing, struggling to pay for the light bill, struggling to pay for child care, struggling to pay for uh, their fuel, their bills when they get back and forth to work, struggling to maintain food in their home. Once you start seeing kind of a pattern of behavior, you start to realize this is not just a like a every now and then or a flip of the coin or a situational circumstance, there's something bigger happening. There's more of a systematic design happening to this. And so Black Coffee was birthed out of Sleeves Who Needs because we were constantly seeing these issues of human rights violation. Like it's, it is, it's unconstitutional to tell children that they don't get to eat tonight because mom makes $7.25 an hour and we're not mm -hmm. paying her a little wage. But we're also charged the same time at a $7.25 an hour. She's got to figure out she's going to pay for $5 milk out of her $7.25. And don't get twisted because she still needs gas to get back and forth to that job. Uh, and so we started realizing that, no, some of these issues that we're dealing with in Sleeps to Needs, these are flat out con uh, unconstitutional acts towards human rights. And so Black Coffee was birthed in the sense of fighting and being a full-time activist and advocate for those human rights that we were seeing in violation through the work of Sleeps mm -hmm. to Needs. Uh, and so Black Coffee has led protests for George Floyd. We have traveled to Louisville, Kentucky to stand in solidarity of Breonna Taylor. Uh, we have protested majorly in local community for Anthony Thompson Jr., who was a high school student murdered in a, uh, a bathroom by Knoxville Police Department. Uh, we have led uh, major community events such as Juneteenth 2020 was a huge one for us. We mm -hmm. came back in 2021. We paused this year because I'm running for office. And so uh, the committees and things really lean on me for guidance and strategic planning. And so I had to step back. And when no one stepped up, I said, well, just pause. Not a big deal. Someone else can do it. Not a, we, we're not one of those groups like, oh, we got to do it all. We're like, no, someone else can do it. This is another year for another opportunity that we can find or maybe identify someone that will invest in, in the energy and time and setup that we put into community events that maybe we can collaborate the following year in 23. Or mm -hmm. my governor, I guess we're really going to do a big for the whole state at that point. <laughs> yes. um, and so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we do Juneteenth. We put down a Black Lives Matter mural on the 2800 block of MLK. As you know, everybody got a Martin Luther King Jr. Street. We put a, we put the Black Lives Matter mural on our Martin Luther King Street. That's right in front of our, that's in front of our historical uh, Black high school and also in front of our oldest Black business in our city, in mm -hmm. our community. Uh, and so, you know, we were very adamant and then we obviously we put a lot of pressure on our political leadership from the state, from the local to the federal level. Uh, I'm sure most of my elected officials and those that are running around the state, they know my name. I think it's funny when people they know, oh, who yeah, you know who you are. I've seen your videos all over the Internet. <laughs> Trust me. They definitely know who you are. <laughs> well, there, yeah, there's a lot of pressure on political accountability, uh, which is the motto of Black Coffee Justice. Black Coffee Justice is accountability serves strong. You know, Black Coffee is strong, right? And so that's the point. We're serving accountability really strong because, unfortunately, what we see in politics far too often, even right now, look at Joe Biden. 
Uh, look oh, at gosh. the Democrats. Look at the Republicans. I don't care. Pick any side. Pick any politician. What are you seeing <laughs> right now? A lot of lack of accountability for things, right? Just a lot of finger pointing. They act like children. It's almost like I'm like I feel like I'm in a room full of daycares, of daycare with four year olds and under because that's how they behave. It's like it's a lot of finger pointing, a lot of back and forth, but no action and no resolution and no movement towards true solution. Just a lot of blaming, but no true solution. And it's involved. and it's designed like that. They they know exactly what they're doing. And it's, it's so frustrating seeing all my friends and family, they argue about which side is better. And I'm saying to myself, you realize that these people don't care about you at all. And they, they, they're literally using you guys as pawns and, and for votes and for power and for careers. Mm -hmm. They don't care about your actual everyday life because they, they already have the health care. They have all their basic needs met what we want so we want those basic needs too what you guys enjoy in congress right and i don't know right. why that's, that's like so hard call. without being called a socialist without being called all these names and and i don't know why people just can't come together and and agree on simple basic needs so like we can argue the other stuff but people should have their basic needs and that that's not happening Correct. Absolutely right. Like you just said before, you know, people are arguing about the same bird. I have to remind people that <laughs> there was no like we don't our country is called the United States of America. It's not called the left white states of America. It's called <laughs> the United States of America. Uh, and as you said before, yes, our, our political leaders are fully aware of what they're doing. They know they are putting everybody on the public screens and pointing each other against each other over things like race, over things like economical uh, uh, living, annual income standards, uh, over social economical status, over educational status, over where I live at neighborhood status. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you're wrong. They find a lot of ways to bring a lot of division. But as you said before, if we as the people just focus on the very basics is that at the end of the day, we all deserve housing. We all deserve food. We all deserve clean water. We all deserve clothing. And we all deserve uh, livable paying wages for whatever job, whatever title. I don't care if you got a degree or not. You deserve to afford from your job an income that will supply your basic need met of your home. Uh, and mm -hmm. I always remind people about the Simpsons. I was like, remember the Simpsons, guys? Remember Homer <laughs> worked at a factory plant and was able to afford a home in the suburbs to supply his three children and his stay-at-home wife. Keep that in mind. Mars didn't work. Mars stayed at home with a garage. That's the 90 era. You used to be able to do that. Now, today, that's almost impossible without breaking your back over and over. You know, I think it's crazy how politicians brag about how the unemployment rate is down, but they don't talk about the fact that unemployment rate is down, but people are working two, three, and even four jobs just to make ends meet. Something's wrong again with that narrative. And I recently shared a post, uh, I think I saw that you liked it, where I said that, you know, working hard is not a compliment. That's not a compliment. Matter of fact, if you're working hard, that means someone's working easy and profiting off of you at this point. Because mm -hmm. if you're breaking your back, trust me, somebody somewhere is collecting all the change off of your hard work and your hard labor. That's why people confuse me with the whole, well, I don't mind working hard. I don't want nobody to give me nothing. No one wants to give you anything. What I'm saying is give you actually the worth of your labor. That's what I'm actually telling you. And so when you say as a working class American, I don't mind working hard. I don't want nothing given to me. You're also telling the rich guy, top, it's nothing wrong with me saying work 50 hours a week or 60 or 80 hours a week so you can afford your light bill this month while I'm here pulling up my Ferrari and I didn't break a single finger to do that. Thanks to you. That's what that really says to me. But see, a lot of a lot of people that identify, they're not on the left. They think that they're left, but they're not really the left. And I have to always tell my audience that Democrats are not part of the left. Liberals are not left. The real left realizes that people on the right who are on the real right, they have the same issues that we have. But these people that are on this left-right paradigm, they like to argue that, they don't realize that capitalism is still an exploitative system. <laughs> and and they, they've lived so long under capitalism, they don't realize that this is the only way I can live. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. that capitalism is ever going to go away. I'm not going to say that right now because we don't, right now we don't have the infrastructure for that to happen. But if mm -hmm. we're going to operate under capitalism, at least say to yourself, you realize that there's a lot of inequality across the board. That's not innocent inequality. That's, that's economic inequality because this system is meant for there to be unequal situations. Mm -hmm. And so you are a victim mm -hmm. of that situation, whether you like it or not. 
you can say that you work hard, but like you're saying, the labor has been exploited and mm -hmm. no one should be making 300 times the amount of money that you're making. When you're the worker, you are the, the labor. They have that money because of you. So for you what? to be passive and say, it's okay, I can work as hard as possible. Yeah, but to a certain point, you need to be getting the benefits from that work. I want to piggyback on that because I want you to also understand something. You cannot work your way out of poverty. You can't do it, especially when it's designed for you to be there. So that's what I'm saying. When you go get that fourth and fifth job, you're still poor. You're still living in poverty. So tell me, now, now tell me, based off of those who believe in a capitalistic agenda, as we're talking about, then tell me how a person who works five jobs, probably making now, if you take 725 times five, what is that? That's $35 an hour, right? Take minus taxes. So really after they make the 35 rate and then you minus up the tax, they're probably really more down to about $25 an hour rate, which is what is really the standard needed for a livable wage today in the inflated market we live in. And yet this person still lives in lower income neighborhoods, their children still attend lower income school districts. They are still buying food from grocery stores that have spoilage or soil food products. They're not getting a fresh, fresh, fresh. They're getting what's left over after the fresh, fresh, mm -hmm. fresh is picked out. And yet you want me to believe that hard work is the solution to this person's circumstance. That's how insane the philosophy <laughs> is about people support capitalism. Uh, and so, yeah, you're right. There's no such thing as working out of poverty when a system is designed to keep you impoverished in the first place. And and I noticed, too, and we're going to talk about who you can actually connect to, because I believe your message is a pretty universal message. And I believe your base as a whole is a strong base. You, I've watched some of your podcasts and listened to some of your videos, and you talk about the veterans a lot. You talk about homeless people a lot. You talk mm -hmm. about black people a lot. You talk about working class mm -hmm. people a lot. By mm -hmm. the time you culminate all these groups together, that's a big base. That's and a majority. But but my question for you would be, how do you get these people who identify as the D team, who are the professors in my class? I'm not, I, I'm a poor person still though. I'm not, even though I'm a professor, but you have people who are very much tenured professors. They're these um, white collar professionals. They vote Democrat every election. And then you have these people who are the R representatives who are poor. And some of them are business owners, entrepreneurs, but they always vote Republican regardless. How do you cut into people like that, regardless of what side that they're on, regardless of how different that they think that they are? How do you cut into capitalize off of those people who identify that way and the other side as well? I think that I think this is where numbers don't lie really becomes a conversation because uh, that's one of the things I've kind of already been experiencing with the campaign. I've had Democrats and Republicans, more Republicans actually have challenged me. They call me the Libertard and oh, Democrat. God. <laughs> and I, and I, it's funny, like, I'm like, I'm neither. I'm actually an independent candidate because exactly. I don't believe in the two-party system, mm -hmm. but I'll take out the name calling. Like you said, anything that seems to be about human rights, they're just boxing it all in like, oh, oh I don't want to hear that. Uh, but to me, this is where data doesn't lie. The numbers are what I speak to. And more importantly, one of the things I know about people, no matter where they're at, how you get their attention, you talk about money. And so these are the things that I like to discuss when I talk about this, this, this particular aspect of trying to unite people. That is kind of the angle of the campaign when we talk about data. When I want people to understand something, when I say in the state of Tennessee, only 6% of our country is making over $200,000 a year annually or more, I'm talking to the 94% now. Because what mm -hmm. I'm telling you that six percent makes two hundred thousand or more, and you're not in that category. Guess what side of things you're now on? You're over here in the economical uh, crisis and cost burden group, which is the ninety-four percent of the state. Mm -hmm. When I tell you that ninety-four percent of the ten care recipients are parents who live in poverty, again, who am I talking to now? The majority of our state. You see what I'm saying? So I try to really hone in on data and how we're spending our current tax budget. Uh, and more importantly, trying to get people to understand how the way, because like you said, it, it's not these ideals we state are extreme to people because like you just said earlier, we're so used to doing something a certain way that mm -hmm. anything outside of that just seems, that's what seems extreme. That's what seems insane. You got to understand, we are generational people, right? So you got somebody that's, that's 80 years old who really don't know the other way. So they see somebody like me, 37 years old, talk about, oh, we can do this now. To them, it is insane. They're like, my mm -hmm. whole life. I have never seen this done. So it does come off extreme, you know, because they're like, how are you, 37-year-old, going to do something that I couldn't even do with my 37-year-old or even for the last 
40 years of my life has not seen that have been achieved. Uh, and then, like you said, it's because we have to start first changing the mindset. And so that's why when I talk about our budget, our $52 billion budget, and I highlight the fact that only 7 million people, though, live in the state of Tennessee, 7 million Americans live in the state of Tennessee, there's no reason that anybody should be struggling in Tennessee. There's no reason that Tennessee should be so highly ranked in poverty in this country the way that we are, because honestly, we have enough tax dollars here to help our state. Uh, and so that's why I bring up things like how uh, our, our how we are trying to have current uh, 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 budget line items want to spend $500 million of taxpayers' money on an NFL stadium that belongs to the Tennessee Titans. But at the same time, the NFL is a billion-dollar billion industry, and we have roadways from I-40 East, I-40 West, I-75 South, I-75 North, but you cannot drive down without hitting a buck hole or something. To me, that's a, something we should be alerting to. Like, wait mm -hmm. a minute, why are we spending money for an industry that has its own money that we can spend our money towards more of our needs in our state to better serve our people versus investing in a corporation that is well endowed and well taken care of to the point they can pay their athletes millions of dollars as well just to play on the football field. Mm -hmm. Something is wrong with this narrative. Uh, same thing, a lot of people don't even know this. I'm going to tell something else for the state of Tennessee. Not only are you investing in $500 million in a football stadium, but I don't think a lot of people are aware of the fact that they're also investing in a $14 million baseball stadium right here in my community, in my city. And that's because Randy Boyd, who is the driver of that oh, conversation, he is what? A capitalist as well. And so what did he what does he do? He's buddy buddy with who? Bill Lee, who's our of course he is. And so what is he able to do? He's able to write up these personal private contract uh, uh, agreements and other things with our government, with our governor and our and our state legislators to get personal money out of again taxpayers' budget. It's taxpayers' money at the end of the day, and he's able to take 14 million of our budget dollars and pour it into a baseball stadium. Let me ask you something, Kiko. Did you get a phone call from anybody asking about that that deal? Was you were okay with that? Did anybody call you and say, "Hey, Kiko, we're gonna give uh, uh, Randy Boyd that announcement for fourteen million of your tax dollars for a baseball stadium?" Anybody call you and ask you that question? No, of course no. not. <laughs> and, and that's the problem, though, right? But that is the problem. We have so much of our budget that is so poorly spent, so poorly allotted, because it's more about supporting rich initiatives and corporate uh, investment dollars. Like they're using our literally they're using our tax dollars like a personal bank account versus what it really is—the people's bank account and serving the people's needs. So that's one of the things I try to bring up and i thank you for the opportunity to do that is that i try to highlight data in our budget and how poorly we're spending our budget and that's why you got people competing over education when education be a competition because we have the money put the 500 from the stadium back to education for and sure. the education conversation goes away because we have the money for, for sure now, it's about feel like we're struggling they're making us feel like we're struggling it's exactly the money's there it's about how you use the money like you said and you, I saw you were in a back and forth with some people on social media about talking about wasteful spending. The Bill Lee, he got a lot of criticism, even from Republicans, about this. Um, what was it? A voucher he was given for people who no, wanted to visit Tennessee. <laughs> he's getting a yes. he's getting a lot of flack yes. from that, and that's one of those things too, where that's not transparent budgeting. No one knows no, where not. that money is going. Going no, to your not. point, they don't know where the money is going at all a lot of times. And so if that happened with the voucher, with the travel, what else do we not know about that's been spent without taxpayer money? A lot. I'll give you a few more, actually. I'm glad you brought up mm -hmm. the, uh, the voucher program because what people don't know, that's why we don't have unemployment in Tennessee because that was where the money was pulled from. Instead mm -hmm. of putting the money into, again, unemployment is for Tennessee and folks who don't have jobs right now. So instead of putting the money in unemployment to support our Tennesseans who are without work for various reasons, it is cold with some of it, but right now people are losing jobs for a lot of different reasons because corporations are allowed to up and leave or move and make changes at the snap of their fingers with no accountability who they're harming when they make those types of decisions. This goes back to also tying into the right to work state clauses in Tennessee. We need to end that because it's foolishness. It's wrong that someone can fire someone because they're disabled. That's something wrong with mm -hmm. that. It's wrong to look at this fire one because they're black. It's something wrong when you this fire one because they're a woman or because they're transgender or whatever. It's something wrong when someone can just look at you and say, mm, I don't like how you look. Ooh, can you kick off? I don't like what your eyebrows are made, so you can't work here no more. Something mm -hmm. is wrong with that because that's also denying diversity and uniqueness of individuals, but it's also trying to conform and, and conformalize and uh, 
control everybody into this ecosystem of that. If you don't meet my standards, you don't belong here type mm. ordeal. Which is what? Oppression. That's a form of oppression is mm -hmm. that. So you're right. The the uh, the, the, the travel voucher program is what bankrupt unemployment. That's why we don't have it now. But here's a big one I think a lot of people don't know. Uh, what was one of the last final policies that was passed in this year's session? As you know, session has ended. Now we're in the July, July mm -hmm. month, which a lot of those new things have rolled through. But what a lot of people don't know is that uh, one of the other deals that was made with the state legislator and corporation, fuel corporation, I'm going to highlight this, fuel corporation. What now has happened in the state of Tennessee in the past, fuel corporations were responsible for their leaks of their tanks or spills or things of that nature uh, in, on their property or at their companies. Now, today, Tennessee is you pay that ticket now. So, you know, recently we just had that big oil spill uh, in our state where I think they said it was like the second largest ever oil spill in the state of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to cost almost 200 plus million dollars to clean up. Guess who's footing that bill? We are the taxpayers. But the gas companies are charging us four or five dollars for gas right now. And yet we are putting the bill for their spills of their product. Mm -hmm. Something's really wrong in the state of Tennessee. And I know a lot of Tennessees don't know that. So for the state of Tennessee particularly, one reason why our gas prices are so high, so high because we're actually paying for everything for the fuel company now. They're not responsible for their tanks. They're not responsible for the leak that we just had and any other leak that comes because someone in our legislature decided that it was better for the taxes to cover that cost than it's for these billion dollar oil and fuel corporations to cover that mm -hmm. cost. Again, Tennessee's been robbing their money every single day. And, and when you look in it, it's an article of that was written full scale on it. So shout out to like Tennessee Outlook, uh, uh, the Channel 5 News Network, uh, you know, those real dog watchers up there in Nashville for us and really keeping an eye on our legislator and our state government uh, to really have blast them when they're doing things they have no business doing. Uh, mm -hmm. Because one of the things that the article broke down was that this is agreement for the next five years. Uh, they also highlight how oil leaks and spill leaks happen all the time and that they have an average ticket around $14.5 million a year. So do the math, everybody. 14.5 times five is how much money. And that's too much money as far as I'm concerned because that's money that has been taken off the tables, taken out of home, taken from education, taken from minimal uh, raising minimum wage pays, taken from unemployment, healthcare, you name it. That is taxpayers' money unnecessarily been spent. And this is why, again, people don't realize we have the money because they say, oh, we don't have that in our budget, that money, which it is. No, actually, this is exactly what it went to. And this is why we don't have the money for other things now is because we're unnecessarily in, in spending uh, uh, our money and poor allotment funding models that does not, that does not serve the greater benefit of our people. I have a question based on what you just mentioned. I was interested in that um, almost in agreement because there was a moment where you, and I think his name is Lord Seth. You yeah, guys were talking yeah. about the minimum wage. And um, I'm, again, I identify as a socialist, but I have my issues as well because I talked to my father-in-law a little bit more about this and he's more conservative, but Minimum wage is a tricky situation because you talked about a living wage earlier and that makes sense. But when you talk about minimum wage, let's take the state of New York, for instance, the minimum wage in the state of New York is $15 an hour. Here is $7.25, right? Something like that. You, your proposal is to ra raise minimum wage to $23 an hour. How, how would that work under your system? Because that, to me, that's a really big jump. I'm not saying that the minimum wage shouldn't go up. I absolutely agree that it should. But um, wouldn't it cause other issues as well? Uh, how, no. how would that look for you? No, I'm going to tell you how. It works. It really does. Because number one, even though New York is making $50 an hour, again, there are New Yorkers living in poverty. Because again, that is not a livable wage. That's a minimum standard. Like minimum you got to pay is $15. Mm -hmm. And from there, oh, you gosh, yeah. and you even up. more than that, you yeah. I'm focused more on making sure that minimum wage really reflects livable wage. As we know, inflation is through the roof right now. And here's the kicker. It's not going to slow down anytime soon. Matter of fact, they're talking about that the uh, Treasury is going to have to increase some more money out here, which is going to do what? Just raise it right on up anyways. And so the reality is that inflation is not going down. It's going no, to it's not. Let's be economically smart. Let's be economically honest. Inflation will continue to go up. There are going to be a lot of things that you think now is unaffordable. Wait till about two two years. I need about two years from now. Two years from now, wait till what it looks like again. Uh, so how does this work? First off, when I say giving us a livable wage, 
And yes, the beauty of talking with Lord Self is that he is a small business owner himself. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about, I'm throwing these, these words out because these are words that are going to come into this conversation. So let's start with the minimum wage first. So we can go to $23 an hour today because as I've highlighted in some of the, in some of the conversations you saw online, is that there are plenty of corporations today that can pay $23 an hour. Here's who. Walmart can pay $23 an hour. Target already has put out a whole article out loud saying we're going to raise our minimum wage to $24 an hour. Oh, wow. That's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah, they've already announced it. But see, Target is understanding we have the money so we can do this. And so Target can do it right now. McDonald's, everybody's so mad at McDonald's. Guess what McDonald's can do? They can afford to pay their employees a livable wage. Uh, The people who can't or may have some struggles to meet the standard is our small businesses. And that's why if you listen to our conversation with me and self, I highlight the fact that yes, I'm also prepared to do what has not been done for a very long time in our federal and state constitution, which is reclassify and redefine what is a small business. I don't think people realize what the definition today is of a small business. Small business definition today is that you have 500 employees. Woo, that that's like a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a GM manufacturing plant right now. That is not a small business, sir. Small business, in my definition, is mom and pop shops, local uh, startup entrepreneur, youth style business where you have less than maybe 20 to 30 employees total max or less at this point. What Self also revealed to me, which I've also been talking with fellow small business about, is that they do want to pay their employees more money. The problem for them, taxes, payroll tax healthcare tax, this kind of tax, that kind of tax. Mm-hmm. And, and as you, you listen to that interview, self admits that to me, that if he didn't have to pay the taxes, he could pay 15 to $20 an hour. Right. Easily for his employees without bankrupting his home. Because that's the thing too. A lot of small business owners, again, they're not like the Fortune 500 corporations. They're not getting a paycheck off of the net profit revenues and gross earned income. They're getting a paycheck after they done paid everybody, paid for everything that the business needs, supplies, equipment, everything else. And what's left over after they done paid their taxes and everything as well on their income, that's what they truly bring home. So I don't want to diminish the owner's income, no more I want to diminish the employee's income. And that's mm-hmm. why in the state of Tennessee, when I say raise the minimum wage to $23 an hour, I'm really talking about those Fortune 500 corporations that can do that today. What we will then do is we will tear the small business category. Once we reclassify small business under Tennessee Constitution in our state, that is what I think will give a lot of small businesses a smooth side because they're going to realize I'm not talking about you. What I'm talking about for you all, though, is we got to get to the, at least the minimum of $15 rate so that we can at least give people some form of affordability. That's where we can use what? That instead of using $500 million on, tax, on our baseball sale, that's why I get to pull that money back and say, no, now I can realize this funding or some of this funding because it's $500 million. It's, it's a few million that we can put around some places. Mm-hmm. But I can realize the money back into the small business business uh, uh, aspect of, of, of our, of our, of our uh, minimum wage payment rate that I'm changing to and using that money as supplement income to support reaching those goals of creating uh, liberal pay raises and minimum pay raise uh, standards for our small business. So for example, what am I saying in total genre is basically nano capital and nano loan grants will now go directly to small businesses because what we did was we reclassified that definition and now we know for a fact that the money we give when we have quote unquote i don't like using the title ppp loans that's really what it was nano capital is different it's a little bit different it's more like an investment to help grow your income in your business and so what we can do now is create those nano capital loans and grants and that would allow for our um for our small businesses to have access to the income they didn't have the first time around. So meaning now that we we reclassify the definition of small business, now your local black business that has 10 employees will get that funding directly. Because we know for a fact, in order for you to get access to this nano capital, you first got to meet the standard of a small business. So McDonald's won't be able to apply for this money because McDonald's, you don't meet the standard. Wendy's, you won't be able to get this kind of money. Sam's. You won't be able to get access to this type of money because, again, you don't meet the definition of our small business. This money will be strictly for small businesses and only for small business. And so that's one of the things with the tax cuts, as well as creating an avenue directly for nano capital and uh, uh, loans and grants to small businesses are the ways that we can help protect small business. But here's the last key factor to it all. At the end of the day, I had to create a whole administration of strictly of small business people. That's really how we get this solved because I have nonprofits. It's a different kind of game with nonprofit for to a for-profit small business. Mm-hmm. And so what I have to do is bring in people like self. I have to bring in uh, people that I know locally like Tanika, 
uh, Harper and DJ Harper, folks like that. I have to bring in, uh, you know, uh, the Keisha Keys and folks in my community. I'm sure you got some names you can think of. Mm -hmm. These are the people that have to come to the table now and tell me as their as their person with the pen and the money, how do we do this? I don't know mm -hmm. that all the answers. I'm offering a solution. Now, you who do this every single day of your life, tell me the best model that we can use to support all small business in our state that will make our income more uh, accessible, more, uh, more uh, uh, increased or influent for the daily basic needs that we talked about, the human basic needs of your employees in your businesses. That way, we can maintain our stronghold, our corporations that says, no, you're going to pay 23 because we know you can. But for my small business, what are the exceptions? What are the standards? What are the models? How do we get this to you? How do we get this out of this person's hand? Or how do we make sure that this, this guy is cool with this state legislator, but he's got a Fortune 500 company out of California trying to set up a shop in Tennessee, doesn't push you out or bump you out, or more importantly, make it even more impossible for you to be able to meet the standards of minimum wage rates because they're bringing in their big manufacturing company getting uh, excessive tax dollars off top because they're friends with the right person in our state legislature. Mm. Uh, so those that's, that's <laughs> the last bit that, right? that happens a lot, right? Damn, so you, got, you, you hit that on the head. <laughs> yeah, because we know it happens. We know it happens. And so that's the real to me, like the, the really that's the star. That is the star. We have to bring small business owners to the table directly to talk to us. How do we make this best? And like I said, I'm not talking about my friends and my homies. I'm talking about real mom and pop shop owners to the table. So how do you do you have that power as a governor? Can you will you do that through executive order? How would that work as far as reclassifying small business? How does that work? What would be the step to uh, doing that? Yeah, I'm sure there is a process to it. Uh, as I said before, I have not done the due, I'll admit this, I have not done the due diligence to look at how do you amend a constitution in the state of Tennessee. Surely it's a Google away. Before right, viewers, right, right. please go ahead and Google it. Drop it in the chat. I'm, I'm willing to look into that. I've been focusing more around who's going to pay that minimum wage rate. For sure. And like I said before, talking to small business owners about this type of change and what is what what is something up front you can tell me today that needs to happen to ensure that your company could meet some form of the standard. Like I said, we're going to tear it off. Tearing it off means that if you're a Fortune 500 company, you're paying a $23 hour rate. Okay, now once we filter that tier on down and we get to, like I said, more of the small businesses, I want to make it 30 employees or less. Now we're going to talk to you guys. Okay. How do we get to 15, maybe $20 an hour in your group? And as self has already built to me, one of the big ones for him is cutting, cutting the payroll taxes down. If he told me that in the interview, go back and listen, you'll hear him say clearly that if I didn't have to pay all these taxes, I could easily pay my employees $20 an hour. Oh, no, for sure. Back. No, I listened to it. I listened to it about three times. Um, no, that made more sense. I just kind of wanted my audience to get that gaze because that's a question that I get a lot. And that's mm -hmm. a question economically. And see, the thing about these issues is good to have. I have friends that are very strong on the social issues, but they have no economic awareness whatsoever. And so you mm -hmm. have to be able to, to combine the economic with the social. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it doesn't really work out and you're not as well-rounded in it because the, otherwise it's just a good idea. Like it mm -hmm. has to be implemented some kind of way. Yeah, and I want to throw in one last tad bit of a small business owner. I don't know, this was a few years ago. I have to go look up the actual name of the guy. But a while ago, people remember, there was a lot of big news. There was a, there was a small business owner. He had like 30 employees or less, but his company's uh, annual revenue was really good. Like they were in the millionaire status of it all. But the key thing was that he took a personal pay cut to improve his employees' lives because apparently the story goes is that this uh, he was the guy that took like a pay cut and like paid off his employees seventy thousand dollars a year annual income and like that brought him down from like uh, I think he was he was making quite a bit but it brought him down even like to seventy k like in order for him to pay all his thirty employees seventy thousand dollars a year he would have to come down to seventy thousand dollars a year and he did that though he's a kicker he did do it but the way the story unfolds is that apparently he had uh, a very good employee. Uh, you know, just one of his star employees, like, that's my employee. Like, if I know I need somebody to get the job done, that's the employee to be done. But he was noticing not a necessary reduction in his employees' work, but it was just like the availability. See, something was off. He knew. So he was like, he went to his employees, like, hey, what's wrong? Like, you know, I just noticed some things are different. 
tell me what's going on. And the employee expressed to him that basically they were going through a financial struggle uh, and it was really stressing them out. So then he asked the employee, well, what can I do? What can I do as a boss? You know, he was one of those. He was really big on his uh, work climate, been always in the most positive vibe of lifting vibe for his employees. So when he saw employees down, he was quick to ask, what can I do as the owner of this company to make this better, a better work environment for you? And mm-hmm. employee told him, I need a livable wage or I need an increase in my pay. And he was like, you know, like he didn't say no. He's like, okay, I have to think about that. I might have to go look at some things. And he did. He went and looked at his books. He realized that he was taking the majority of the, the revenue of the company, which as we already talked about, though, he's a good boss because he realized, okay, I don't want to be eating up all the revenue when one of my star employees is telling me they're having a financial struggle. And it's really honestly because me, I'm eating up all the money. And so he came back to that employee and he gave her the raise and, and increased her income to $70,000, which helped her a lot because it was like double. I think at that time in the article it states she might be making like thirty dollars or 40000 So he gave her at least a twenty-five dollars or greater income raise uh, uh, to her annual income. But what he did was he said, you know what? If she's going through it, that means probably all my employees went through it. So he raised everybody's income up to $70,000 a year. And like I said, it made him have to take a pay cut too, but he was okay with that because he was mm-hmm. more worried about his employees' well-being. He was more worried about his employees having their needs met and the necessity of their homes uh, taken care of. And more importantly, he knew that if I invest in my people, what's going to happen? They're going to overproduce for me. And so for he sure. did that. I won't say the article was back maybe like in 2015, 2016. Uh, I recently saw like an updated article a year or so ago because my mom was going to talk about it. Actually, my mom's because she's going to put me on to it. Like, look at this guy. But looked at, I looked at the updated story that was put out maybe like a year or two ago battle. And today, he's back to being able to claim $1.5 million in his own personal revenue. He has continued to increase all his employees' uh, pay. But the kicker is his numbers are at the highest they've ever been in productivity. His revenue is up as high as it's ever been since he started his company. His climate of his work environment is amazing, excellent. People want to come work for him, not because, oh, God, I got to be here. This is the only way I'm going to eat. They want to come to work. They perform like they want to be at work. And overall, he just has a very healthy work environment, work climate. And he admits to it that it all is because he made a personal sacrifice for the greater good of his company, which was his biggest investment, his employees. So don't tell me it's not possible. It is possible. Mm-hmm. We all got to do something that we're not used to doing as human beings. We got to make some personal sacrifices. We got to stop being so selfish. And we got to be more importantly, the biggest one, stop being too damn greedy.